It's been almost 35 years since the Beastie Boys released the all-time classic, Licensed to Ill. And while some of the record's lyrics and antics sound as dated as the Porky's movies, the album is still exceptional. For Beastie Boys fans, Licensed to Ill is a glimpse into the lives of MCA, Ad-Rock, Mike D, and their first DJ and producer, Rick Rubin. Their debut album is a pastiche of inside jokes and musical inspiration pulled from the classic rock and hip-hop records they listened to in Rick's college dorm room. Rick recently connected with Mike D, Ad-Rock, and Spike Jones, who directed the new Beasties documentary. With Spike playing moderator, they teleport back to the early 80s and talk about their lives leading up to the release of License to Ill. It's all here. The inspiration behind Brass Monkey, Rick's infamous Bubble Machine, and why DJ Double R bailed on the Beasties' first big break, opening up for Madonna on her Like a Virgin tour in 1985. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. It's been about 20 years since Rick and Adam Horvitz have talked. And like most Zoom calls, their reunion gets off to a glitchy start. Mike D kicks things off. Oh, there's Adam. Hi. What's up, sir? Rick, you look different. (laughs) It's good to see you. You look the same. Yeah. No, that's a lie. That is an abomination. Mike, you look great. Don't start, Adam. Don't start. Don't start. Rick, first of all... Very nice to see you. It's been a long, long time. The last time I can remember us speaking was at one of the Tibetan Freedom Shows. You have a good memory then. I don't remember that. That had to be, but I mean, just time-wise, putting a timestamp on it, that was at least 20 years ago. It's unbelievable. It's surreal. And it makes no sense. I mean, from my perspective, it makes no sense. (laughs) I'll say I haven't, I, I don't know why it worked out that we've not, hung out in that amount of time i just i've been so busy you know (laughs) i can remember there was a little window of time that we started spending a little bit of time together in los angeles right when you came to los angeles after i was already there and um and i can remember we had lunch at hugo's god damn i don't remember anything oh yeah going back to the hugo's days Mike, we're trying to talk. Pasta a la mama, yo. (laughs) Mike, we're trying to talk right now. (laughs) We hung out a handful of times, Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing you, and I think something happened that I don't know what happened at the party for the Blood Sugar Sex Magic album. Ugh, it was that album. That's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I got daggers today coming with all cylinders, you guys. I, uh, we we can see we can see we can see. Wow, I'm in I'm in a mood today. Dude, I think Adam, for your for, well, along with your daggers, I think you need like you need a, a bank of sound effects, like you know, dub siren. No, no, no. I'm just in a mood. Let's get all the dagger out. Let let's do let's. What, so what's the show, Rick? What is, what happens on your show? What's what is it? Uh, I wouldn't call it a show. It's a com- It's usually a conversation, and I talk to different artists, and they tell me stories about what they do. Okay. It's not unlike what happens in a recording session before the music gets made. Just bullshitting. That's typically what it's like, just kind of, and, and especially if it's someone that I don't know, learning who they are. Okay. Can I start with a question, which I know is, but I'm just curious, so I want to ask it. Do you find that you more often find out things that you don't know about people that you do know when they're doing your show? Or do you find stuff about somebody you do know that's doing your show more in an unexpected way than somebody who you don't know at all who's doing your show, where you have no background? In both cases, I learn a tremendous amount about the people I'm talking to. It's maybe more unusual with people that I know because I get to talk about things that we don't normally talk about. Like, I was thinking about even from the time that we knew each other back in the day, stuff we never talked about. Like, I wanted to ask you guys about high school. Like, right. I don't know what your experience of high school. I'm, I was just curious. Like, wow, I was around. It was about the time you guys were just either just ending high school or just recently ending high school. I'm like, what was that like? We never talked about that. Well, it, it's funny to think, actually, as you say that, because we spent so much time in your dorm room, 
I've never once pictured you in a class. I had no idea. I never even thought that you actually like attended classes. Yeah, I didn't. T- I didn't attend many. Right. Well, and, and interesting. Conversely, when we were in your dorm room, Rick, it's because we were not going to school. Right. So it's like, yeah, but but it's true. That's a good point. We never ever talked about. We I never ever asked you about NYU ever. We just for our perspective, we just thought. Wow, this is cool. Like this guy lives in a dorm. He's going to college, and we're in high school. Yeah. So this, like, this is cool. Like you were like, we thought you were going to be the cool. Like you turned, you know, you were like the cool, like slightly older guy. And then, and then also mistakenly, I think we thought, wow, we're going to be hanging out in this dorm, which just means we're going to meet like tons of girls, and this is going to be great. And we never talked to anybody. It was not, but it was not like that. I mean, for you, Mike. <laughs> Adam, what was your what was your school experience like on Sixty Third Street? Um, well, I was I went I was supposed to go to Brooklyn Tech because I wanted to go to Stuyvesant, but I didn't get in, and so I went to Brooklyn Tech, and that was just too weird. That's a whole other story, but tell it tell that story. What was weird about it? No, Brooklyn Tech. Like I wanted to go to Stuyvesant because my best friend Arthur went there, and um, and I didn't get in, so I went to the other school you could go to it was a technical school in Brooklyn and it was massive and they had like metal detectors to get in. And it was this huge technical school. And I like, I quickly realized after like the third day, like this is not for me. I don't know what the fuck it's fright. It was just so overwhelming. Looking back, I wish I would have actually stayed and learned something technical actually could, could have helped me. But, um, so I just stopped going to school for a while. And then my dad got me into the school McBurney. That was a, a, a private school uptown. And I was there for a couple of years and then I stopped going probably right around the time I met you. And not that the two things, not that two things are related. I'm just saying. Yeah. What was the experience like of the school? Like what were the kids like? The experience going, going to school. Cause I was also, I got into graffiti cause we were into graffiti. And so like, that was the fun part about getting to school is just like being on the train and watching this, you know, just seeing who was on there and all that stuff in the school. The, the first school was, was just overwhelming. It was, uh, I can't even describe it. It was just huge with thousands of kids. It was just a massive school. And then McBurney was like a preppy school. It was like a, I don't know. I just seemed, felt really out of place there. I felt kind of dirty, like my clothes are dirty. But can you tell, tell us the story, Adam, why you never returned to McBurney? <laughs> oh, yeah. So they had the, the school play was going to be Oliver. And so I did, they had auditions and I, and I sang for the audition, uh, consider yourself at home. And I'd never really sang out loud before. And I was so bad that I just left the school and never went back. Incredible. <laughs> but I will say, Adam, I think you'd be a good artful, like artful Dodger. Artful yeah. Dodger. Yeah, you'd be I know. Good. Like I, even now, I, then now in between, not my vote. I know, but it was singing. I can't, as you know, I can't sing. I mean, I can, but it's just bad. Yeah, yeah. It's not your, you know, not you're not rapping forte. I get it. <laughs> Adam, did you get into graffiti before before hip hop music, or were they simultaneous? Later, later. Hip hop later. No, rap music first, definitely. Oh, okay. And do you remember um, the what were the record stores that you guys hung out in? Did you guys hang out in record stores? All the, I know you hung out at Rat Cage. But was that like the first record store where you would like spend time? But the, the, like the Rat Cage, we were at, like that. That was the first record store where I like I, I felt comfortable talking to the person behind the counter. I, I, I would go to Bleeger Bob's all the time, like get like get, get off the train coming home from school, and I'd go to Bleeger Bob's, and I'd be terrified because Bob was always there. He'd yell at you know he'd yell at you, he'd yell at me, and he had that huge Doberman pincher. Shit was scary, and yeah, they were always mean to me. They were mean to everybody. He would always say random, weird Jewish stuff to me. I was just like a little kid. I just wanted to find out about what cool, what was new, what was cool, and I didn't know. And they were so mean. But then, then it was cool. I do remember going to Nine Nine Records. Yeah, that was where I hung out. I loved, I loved Nine Nine. I my memory of the of those days were that the whole schedule of the day was based around going to the club. Did you guys feel that way as well or no? Oh yeah. Like that was the that was really the the primary thing every day was what club was going to be that night 
if there was going to be a band, if not, what DJs to go to see and where to hang out. Well, that's why rec- the Rat Cage record store was, was great because it was the first record store that kids hung out at, for me at least. You know what I mean? The other record stores that I used to go to, you know, kids wouldn't really hang out. Bleaker Bob's maybe, but they, I didn't like it there. And so Rat Cage was like a, a meeting, pl- like a hangout place. And later right. your dorm room was well, that place. Well, I was going to say, Rick, definitely going, moving the needle forward a little. Like when we would hang out with you and we go to your dorm room, I remember like every day, like it was just kind of like go to your dorm room and then figure out what we were doing that night. And, and what we were doing that night always revolved around what club we were going to. I remember it always being around music. Even during the day, we would yeah. make mixtapes and s- sometimes sit out on the front, uh, the front of the dorm with boombox and listen to music. And it seemed like that's all that it was. That's all that was going on. All that seemed important was music and and what we were going to eat and what we were going to listen to. And Mike was clearly focused on hooking up. <laughs> Little did we know. I was interested. I wasn't very good uh, in that arena yet, but uh, but yeah, but I, I was interested. Where did the original Volkswagen emblem come from? That was from my friend Laura Schulson. It was uh, on her wall. So wait, wait, I don't understand. But was it on her wall on that chain? I don't remember. Like I think. There? I think she just had it on the wall. She took it off a car, and for some reason, I I had it, and then put it on a string, and then you took it. That's what I love about being a teenager: how much stuff just sort of goes from one kid to the next to the next. Well, I just I, I remember. I feel like I feel like you and Yout came over, and it was like you gave it to me in a glorious presentation. Yeah, yeah. I always, like in my revisionist history. I feel like. Like some, like it's almost like I feel like I was knighted. Like you guys gave me bestowed. It was bestowed upon you. <laughs> it was bestowed upon me, and then I could become Mike D. I'm going to dispute that because think about it. What have I ever given you, Mike? <laughs> I feel like I rem- I feel like Nothing. I remember this happening though. I I feel like I was there really? for that. Yes, the be- the yeah, bestowing, I've- the bestowing. But I do feel like, and I don't know how it ended up being on the chain, Adam, because I don't think it was on that chain somehow like that chain was like sitting around I don't, I don't remember that exactly but i remember them once i started wearing that it was kind of like then it was like i felt like everybody felt like all right i could i could be my d now that was your superman cape <laughs> yes it was wow rick when you first met these guys what was like what what are can you think of a time where there's some times when you were like oh i get them i understand who they are like I understand who Yauk is or who Adam is or who Mike is. Like, what was your sense of that? Well, I remember meeting Adam first through Dave Skilkin. And I remember Dave Skilkin was sort of the, in my mind, the glue. Like he was a kid who was just uh, super friendly and outgoing, which I, I don't think any of, any of us were. I thought we met, you and I met because of Nick Cooper. Could be wrong. I remember Nick Cooper, but I didn't remember that. that's how we met. I- I do, Rick, remember, I remember Nick Cooper telling us about you and being like, yeah, there's this guy, I, you got to meet him, because we, we'd put Cookie Puss out, we really needed a DJ, it's like, you got to meet him, he's into like the stuff that you guys are into, and he's a DJ, and he's got all the equipment, and according to, to Nick, remember I asked about this, he's like, he's got a bubble machine, that was his big line. It's true. I'll see that, Adam, it's true. Rick is confirming the bubble machine. Well, it's true that I ha- I know I, I had access to a bubble machine. Access. Yes. Okay. I never. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, it didn't. You when we were writing the book, you were like Rick didn't have a. You were no, I said the bubble machine, and you were like, I don't think so. And then you called Rick, and Rick was like, Yeah, uh, I don't know about a bubble machine. And I was like, You both are crazy because there was definitely a bubble. There machine. There was a bubble machine. Why else would you want to meet someone? Exactly. <laughs> oh they have a bubble machine oh, okay i'll go the funny the funny thing is is that the bubble machine was something that just was at the dorm it's like uh and when i heard that there was a bubble machine there it's like oh wow we gotta have a party we have a bubble machine now so let's have a party and um that was where the bubble machine story began hey rick I, I, I'm, I'm curious about like just what your relationship with with each of them was like 
I can remember spending the most time with Adam and it seemed like our friendship had mostly to do with music because that's what we, we just listened to music all the time, as I recall, and DJing and music. And then I think I met the other guys through the story of Cookie Puss after Cookie Puss was already out and then wanting a DJ. And then I came to a couple of shows and DJed after the, after the live set, as I recall. Hard to remember first impressions. I remember seeing Mike before I met Mike at Negril one night. And I remember someone saying, oh, that's one of the guys in the Beastie Boys. And I remember thinking it was just like, uh, it was just a weird, um, I had a weird impression, not good or bad. Just like he's a kid, feels like maybe my age, maybe a little younger, and he's in a band. And and I remember he was, I think you, I think you may have been pretty uh, inebriated that night, really? <laughs> um, Mike. And I just remember thinking, wow, this guy seems like a little like, uh, seemed like revved up, you know, like revved up. <laughs> you, like tough, tough guy Mike, you mean? Like he's just like bad boy? No, no, no. Just like, like enjoying himself. Like he, he was hitting it hard. Yeah, he goes hard in the paint. He went hard in the paint. He was going hard in the paint. And it was impressive. Come on, Mike. I don't remember being <laughs> inebriated that night, which doesn't mean that I wasn't. But what I do, what I do, I do remember is two things. One is that was a really, really important night for like us, for you, Rick, is like a, a part of us. Like, is that was like where we really saw like hip hop came. Like I talk about it in the book where hip hop came downtown, and all of a sudden there's the Treacherous Three, and then I think it was like next week was Africa Bambata and Jazzy J. If it wasn't that night, whatever. And it was like, just, it was the most exciting thing. But so my thing in terms of compensating, I think there's like, of course I was completely, it's funny because I like, I think about, I think back on those Negril nights and I think, wow, I was like so intimidated. I was so scared to be there, but I was loving every second of it. I was, there was no like club night maybe that was more influential or exciting to me, but but I was compensating for being intimidated, probably. But like, and because I was with like my group of like friends, I was probably acting like, "Oh yeah, I, I got this," but I definitely didn't have it at all. Rick, what what did you know about the about Beastie Boys at that point, or what did you? Yeah, what was your impression of them? Had you ever heard of them? I don't think I knew anything. I think the first thing that I heard of the Beastie Boys was Cookie Puss, which I loved, and I remember I was in San Francisco. And I heard it at, um, a, she was a writer and a... And a Ann Powers. Yeah. I think it might have been Ann Powers. And I think I was stay, staying at her like lofty place. And I think I heard it there. I don't know if she played it or if I heard it on the radio in San Francisco when I was there. But I remember the connection of being at her house and hearing it. And, um, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. Because I was really, really into hip hop at the time. And felt like it, it was the first punk rock expansion towards hip-hop. That's what it felt like. It was as much a punk, I would say it was as much a punk rock record as it was anything else. Compared to hip-hop records, it was punk rock. But compared to other punk rock records, it was more hip-hop. And I remember thinking, wow, it's really cool. And, and, it, and it had a, and I remember laughing at it and laughing at it with it, you know, like laughing with it, thinking, this is really funny. It's really good. And I remember, I remember the, the, I remember Yauk and his motorcycle jacket and his long raincoat. And at one point I felt like him and Nick Cooper kind of had a similar raincoat vibe. <laughs> you know, that raincoat vibe. Yeah. I don't remember how I met Nick Cooper, but I remember that to me, it, it felt like an anomaly, but in both cases, the raincoat vibe was not something you saw kids in New York wearing. Like it was a, it was a fashion statement to wear a long, somewhat dressy raincoat. Yeah. Yeah. The raincoat vibe played, played strong. When I first met Yauk at, at this Bad Brains show at the Botany Talk House, and, and he was the only other kid my age that was there, I was like, wow, this, the kid's wearing like a trench coat and his combat boots and his like, hair spiked up like this kid's really cool yuck actually kept that raincoat thing for that trench coat for a long time yeah that vibe trench coat vibe worked yeah 
I was going to say, also remember Yauk's obsession with the bad brains. Like, it felt like nothing else in the world existed other than the bad brains. And um, yeah. he kept that going for a long time, too. Yeah, and I, I uh, remember as a, as a music fan seeing that sort of obsessive dedication and just thinking, wow, he's really, again, going hard. Like, <laughs> he's going hard for this thing that he loves. Did you do you feel like you got the answers that you wanted? Yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. I, I, I I'm always curious what what uh, I mean when you're like 18, it's kind of hard. Like, how, how would you describe somebody you meet is kind of hard because it's more about like what what common interests, like being having the same music interests. But did you have a sense during like just not knowing these guys then how you would describe each of them? I never really thought about it. I, I did feel like I definitely felt that. I felt like um, the 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 place that I grew up in and and the people I was around and where I grew up had a big impact on what I what I saw, what I knew, and I felt like their life experience was very different than mine, and it was just interesting. And in some ways, um, I thought it was. Uh, good thing and in some ways i thought it was a bad thing from from my perspective in, in what way in what way was it good and what way was it bad you're talking about like a, a long island kid versus a city kid kind of right yeah i would say at, like they had better access than i had because this is pre-internet like now everyone could find out anything they want about anything where i was it was hard to find out anything about anything I would, I'd spend a lot of time in the library doing research and even, and even that research wasn't sort of cultural of the moment research. It was just what I could learn about the things I was interested in. And then spending a lot of time in record stores is my closest way of having any uh, connection to culture because where I lived, there wasn't, it, it didn't really exist. Although there was a club called, there were a couple of nightclubs and I did get to see like the specials played in my hometown, which was remarkable. Um, on the downside, I felt like maybe by living in the city, it might narrow the view of what was cool. Like I didn't know what was cool coming from where I came from. And the beauty of that was I could, I could see and hear everything. There was very little peer pressure about, about that where I lived, whereas I could see if you were in the city there was stuff that was cool to like and not cool to like, and that could have a, a limiting effect. I mean, I guess, yeah, I heard Led Zeppelin playing for like other like kids at school, but because, and kind of like to your point, I, I had already like decided, like I was so set on making my identity about being into stuff that those kids weren't into. I couldn't hear Led Zeppelin. But then when we were in your dorm room and all of a sudden, you know, you put on, when the levee breaks, we we're like, what's this? This is like the best thing ever. Or like ACDC or, you know. What are your, what t tell me, uh, Mike, first, tell me your memories of the dorm room. Uh, first of all, it's the first college dorm I'd ever been in, period, because we were in high school. Um, I remember like just being intimidated, like going up to the desk. And I guess it must have been like maybe Mr. Rick. Rick Manoa at the desk and like having to get the pass or whatever to go up in the elevator, being you know, get the visitor pass because we're visiting you. And then I, and then I remember being kind of confused because you had a roommate, but then you, I think you had a roommate, right? I actually need you to kind of like explain this to us, but I, I think you had a roommate when we first went there, but you had this huge PA in the, in the dorm room with like two Serwin Vega, you know, it was a, like oh, it was like the biggest PA I've ever seen. Like a, a, like somebody that I knew have, and then you know, with the turntables and like the drum machine and everything. And so so we loved it and were impressed. So you know, all this equipment, but I was very confused. I was like, wait, how does Rick just like? And we were listening to music really loud in your dorm room, which and I loved it. But how are you, how is this guy able to do this and like not get kicked out of the dorm room? And where's his roommate? Like, it was just a lot of questions. Yeah. Yes. All, all of that. <laughs> Adam, what were your, what were your memories of the dorm room? I, I you know, first of all, I, I was looking for a place to be basically. 
you know, sort of in life and literally, like not going to school and needing somewhere to be. But also being around, you know, older kids is cool when you're younger, you know, intimidating, but, you know, kind of cool. You're like, oh, you kind of think that you're one of the, you know, older kids now. And it was just, it was just cool. I, you know, you, especially going to your dorm room, you had just the, the records, the stuff like, I, you know, two turntables, a drum machine. I was like, I loved it. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have that stuff. I didn't have all those records. So it was great. I loved it. I mean, yeah, like Rick, you talk about access and yes, we did, we did have like growing up in New York City, like when we talk about it in the book, in the show, whatever, like it definitely was a huge thing to us that we would just hear music all around us or that we'd go to Rat Cage because we'd want to find out what's happening that night and somebody would say, oh, this thing's happening and we would just go there because we had this access as teenagers, but, but in your dorm room, it was just really exciting because like what Adam said, we would, I remember like I was my, I, I was again, like kind of confused, but so impressed when you, you would come, you would, uh, I think I felt like you would come you know, if they delivered it to you or if you'd come back every week with like a, a crate of records from the record pool. Yeah. And you remember that? And then we'd all go, we'd go through them and put like basically everyone on to see what was good, what we liked, what we didn't like, whatever. We listened to every 12 inch from that week. And that was such like an exciting thing. Like I didn't, I didn't have the, like I, I had the money to get a single, like a rap single every once in a while. But I certainly would never think and never had the money to buy two copies of the same record. That just seems nuts. And so to go to your place and you had two copies of all these singles that I loved and we had two turns, it was just amazing. You know, it was nice to see you too, obviously. I'm in a- <laughs> Should I feel used? I never <laughs> did get that bubble machine access. Right. Little. But then also, I, I think, and Adam and I have talked about this, like, there was, it was interesting, we felt like we were trying to just think back at, like, or, you know, when we first, like, we met you and then we started working with you, it's like, you had, especially, like, once you started, sort of, when you started producing uh, with us, and, like, producing our records, it was like, you had this confidence, Rick, that was, like, you know, it's not like every either any of us were like, "Well, Rick, what what record have you done?" You know what I mean? Like, and and we're all whatever. We're all of it's seventeen, eighteen years old. But it's like you had this confidence, like you knew how you wanted things to sound. And looking back at it, like I'm just so impressed, honestly, with that. Like, who? It's like got to be pretty rare that somebody at like eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one years old knows how they want like what kind of what types of records they want to make yeah it's it's weird i i definitely knew i had a clear vision of what i wanted to hear really as a fan it wasn't it was more um i just loved it and i knew how certain things made me feel and i wanted more of the ones that made me feel good and less of the ones that didn't make me feel as good and it was a very pure it was the same way, same way that you connected to it. I just, and I think maybe part of it might have been that I didn't have brothers or sisters. You guys both had siblings, and I think that changes it. It's like I, I spent most of my time until I started hanging out with you guys by myself. So it wasn't the, the only opinion that I was around was my own. You know, I didn't have an older brother playing me music. I didn't have, I didn't have, it, it all sort of had, I had to find it and, um, and see what resonated with me. And it, and it had very little to do with the people around me. Cause like in my high school, nobody liked punk rock. I was the only person who liked punk rock. So I had no sense of community at all. When I started listening to hip hop, at least there were a couple of kids in my high school who liked hip hop. Well, I'm going to change uh, the subject for a sec. Because there is something that I wanted to know, Rick. Yes. So, Spike, I don't know if you know this, but so we got the, the the gig to open for Madonna on tour, and Rick was the Beastie Boys DJ, DJ Double R, and we played a couple shows, um, and then he was gone, and uh, and he said that his doctor said he had an inner ear situation that he couldn't fly. And so I thought that that answer couldn't fly. And so now I'm asking you, Rick, w- w- did you just not want to do it or did you really have an ear problem? 
hundred percent true. He, both an- both answers are fine with me. No, no, no. Of course, hundred percent true. I went to the the clinic on fourteen. There was a ear, nose, and throat clinic on Fourteenth oh, Street. Oh, I know. I had I know. never been there before, and I went there, and they said you have a terrible infection in your ear. You got to take these drugs and you cannot fly. If you fly, you'll probably lose your hearing in that ear. So that was, and we, and I, it's funny because I don't remember us talking about it, but also maybe part of the reason we didn't talk about it was because it was, the tour was already ongoing. Wasn't it? It was like, we were, I feel like we did like, no, you don't. You flew out like you started the tour with us in like Seattle and Portland or something. Yeah. And then for some reason you had to fly back to New York, but we were still on tour, and you were you were supposed to meet us again, like in Los Angeles or something. And then instead of meeting us, you were like you, you know, you are you had the the ear infection. Yeah. Now, now we're finding out it was legit, but at the time we were like ear infection. Well, I'll tell you everything. It, free, feel free to ask me. Everything was always legit. It's like I, I don't. I would have loved to. I loved being in the band. I loved doing the shows. It was it was completely thrilling. I loved it. I feel in some ways, it's like the the universe has this incredible power to affect my ear and make me stay in one place, and then it led to me focusing all of my attention into production. Instead of being in a band, which could have been like, it could have been it, that could have happened. And it just sort of worked out the way maybe it was supposed to. I don't know. It feels like in retrospect, looking back, I would have never made that choice. While I'll say I didn't like traveling. I loved the experience of playing in the band. It was super fun. I thought the shows were great. Like I can remember, I can remember, us playing at uh, Radio City and uh, <laughs> just how much the audience didn't like it. And I just thought it was incredibly punk rock and fun. Yeah. I can remember Madison Square Garden and thinking it was in, it was just like, we're playing at Madison Square Garden. Can you believe this? We didn't even really, we didn't have an album out. It was unbelievable. Right. What were the shows like, Rick? Uh, it was, it was funny because we got to do the, the crazy, Beastie Boys show and lean into the craziness of uh, of the sort of heel persona, the bad guy persona, and in front of an audience where it was completely inappropriate, which made it even funnier. It's like it's it's like if you're if you're uh, if you're doing a punk rock show in front of a punk rock audience, there's this camaraderie there, and if you're doing a punk rock show in front of people who are not feeling it. It really gets punk rock. It's like it gets it gets uh, elevated to this other thing. Not for anybody but us. I mean, I I I found it thrilling. Um, I'm sh- I know the audience hated it, but that was sort of part of the fun of it. Well, I think even more than hated it, and and I think that's where it became thrilling to us was that like these twelve year old girls, and maybe more importantly, their parents were genuinely horrified. They were, they were repulsed. <laughs> I mean, and, and to be right, and to be fair, we're a bunch of like little white kids yelling at them on stage. Like, you should be. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, what well, was offensive? Yeah. And uh, yeah, and for the record, like, Ricky, you know, you obviously had a big. That was, that was another thing, like, along with introducing us to, to heavy metal, Led Zeppelin, Sabbath, ACDC, you, we also. Like the wrestling thing was never cool. That was super uncool to us, right? Because we were these punk rock kids. It's still uncool. It's uncool to everybody. But you were totally, you had like this like vocabulary in that world. And you immediately saw like this opportunity with the Madonna tour that like, oh, it was like obvious to you. Like, no, guys, what do you mean? We're just, you're just going to be, it's just like wrestling. You know, you had a, which is pretty weird to think about. Most people don't think about, like, if you have a band that's going to open up for this, somebody who is like a cultural icon who couldn't have been, you couldn't have had a bigger pop on the planet at that moment, Madonna, like the biggest star in the world. Most people just think, like, how do you put a good show together? And you, you saw it through this totally other lens where it's like, no, it's obvious. It's just like wrestling. Well, the, the other part of it was, is, 
no matter what we did, the audience was there to see Madonna and they weren't going to like what we did regardless. Right. So to, to really lean into that idea of, well, we're the, we're the, the bad guys here. We're, we're the enemies and to, and to overcome that, to play it with all this bravado, like you're here to see me. And like, it's just so ridiculous. So funny. Adam, do you remember the stuff you said? I remember you said some really oh, come on. funny. Most, oh, come on, you guys most remember the the big, the best and biggest line was, "I am the king of the Paramount." <laughs> like whatever theater we are at, that's how Adam would open up the show. I am the king of you know Madison Square Garden. Do you, Adam? Do you see the humor in this? No, really. No, of course I do. It's hilarious. No, you're now like, you're like I, I've, I, you're, you have this face like I didn't like it. <laughs> no, 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 no. We we also we also just did a, this show a bunch of times in the movie and the whole thing. So I, it's fresh in here. I see. Um, it was amazing. It was hilarious. It's a, it's a it's a it's not a it's not a wild idea, but it's a it's a it is a great idea. You know, they're not going to like us. They're certainly not going to love us. They might possibly be like, eh, I didn't like that. But if we can guarantee that they remember us by saying, I fucking hated that. And I will hate this and have this memory of hatred for a long, long time. That's an interesting way to get your music through to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. And we, but I remember at the time, like being convinced, like, cause it was like the, we looked at it in this like B-boy way of like, yo, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And we did. Hey, Rick, one thing I wanted to ask about just is uh, production on the first record. It, the, uh, we, you know, we talked about it a little bit in the show, but obviously we have so much stuff. But that, like, as, as a fan, there's some bands that take a while to form and then some bands that just come out fully formed. Like, that, you know, and that record, and even just actually the way these guys describe you with the competence, it sounds like you kind of came out fully formed in some strange you know amazing way what was like what was the process of of that first record i can just remember that every time there was a good idea we would make a new song and i can remember the i remember two parts i remember the lyric writing which would be basically every night that we went out to the clubs i remember trading lines only with the hope of making the other member laugh like I would always say stuff that I would think would try to make Adam laugh if we were hanging out. And if he laughed, I would write it down <laughs> and um, just collecting lines. And we would both, we would all do it back and forth and, and um, collect up these mountains of, of rhymes, not so much with a subject or a song in mind. Most of the time it was more just good lines. Then I can remember being in the studio, sometimes with Adam, sometimes myself, just making tracks because it's what I was always doing and would just make tracks and, um, and just trying to make something interesting. And I, I and I, I don't think I could separate it in my head, but I knew the beats for LL were different than the beats for the beastie boys and the beats for the beastie boys were different than the beats for run DMC. And it seemed clear to me, but I can't, put a finger on what was different but i knew as they were as we were making them it's like oh this one this one feels like a ll beat and this one feels like this could be a really good beastie boys record it's those those like gated snare drums i don't know i can't say i can't i can't put a finger on what it was do you remember sometimes making the record where it's like oh this is what like it sort of gave clarity to what the whole record is like a decision a beat a lion no i remember I was in Electric Lady working on the Cults album, Electric, and I got a call from Mike. And Mike said, hey, how come our record's not done yet? And, and do you remember this, Mike? No, not at all. This was amazing. Because I think this was like, you guys were on tour. I assume I, I was, this is, must have been post-ear infection. Uh -huh. Well, no, no, we were probably on Raising Hell by that point. And I remember like a, a somewhat heated conversation where you were like, dude, <laughs> you didn't say dude, but like the equivalent of dude, <laughs> right. Right. why is, I mean, we're on tour. Why is our album not done? And, and I said, you know, it doesn't, and I remember it's like, it doesn't just happen. Like it doesn't, uh, it's not not happening because I don't want it to happen. It, it, uh, 
each of these things arrives when it arrives. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, we didn't go into the studio every day with the idea of, okay, we're going to make something today. It was more like making beats in the dorm, listening to records, like coming up with what a, what a track was going to be, which sometimes it'd be six weeks or two months between songs. You know, it took, it was a long period of time. I can't remember from the time that we made whatever the first song was for that record till we made the last song. I'm guessing it was 18 months. Could have been two years. It was, felt like a long time. And so also the other thing you guys talk about in the show, Mike and Adam talk about in the show is going away on tour and coming back and you'd finished the record and mixed it. And they were surprised that it was this big thing where they were, they thought they were making a sort of more lo-fi punk rap record. Uh, talk about that. Was that something you always saw? You always knew that it, that was the sound? Not at all. I, I, in any case, there was no preconception of what something was supposed to sound like. It was just making it sound as good as it could sound for what it was, whatever it was. It's like same is true with LL or same is true with Raising Hell. It wasn't like there was no thought to it. And the the gated snare thing was like a, it's interesting you bring it up because it was a, it was like a moment in time. And I think it was really, what was the art of noise was the, it was the thing that got everyone excited about this kind of drum sound. And that was probably like experimenting in that art of noisy way that led to that is my guess. If you had if you had Art of Noise twelve inch and Man Parish twelve inch, which one would you put on first? Both. I like them both. You can't put on both first. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Depends on it. Depends on the scenario. Depends on the scene. So you read a room? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> roosters are going off. Can you turn the fucking roosters down in the in the mix, please? <laughs> the roosters are feeling it. <laughs> the roosters are deep in the paint today. Oh God. I wanted to ask Mike and Adam about their memories of Chung King also. Oh, man. Yeah, Chung, that's a good question. I, 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 well, I, a few things. Like, I, remember, I remember, I think I was, we were with you, Rick, and we were talking, and Jay Burnett was like, oh, you guys got to work at this place. Like, I, don't, I don't think he said Chung King. We, I feel like we named it Chung King. He's just like, oh, you got, oh, secret, it was called Secret Society then. That's right. He's like, you got to work at the studio, my friend's studio, Secret Society. Well, he was like talking about the, I guess, like the Neve console or something, like stuff that definitely as a kid, I didn't really understand, but he was all excited about it. So we were like, okay, bet. And then we go there and it's just kind of like, you know, we don't really know about studios, but it's just like kind of bummy. Yeah. You know, like it's not like nothing, there's nothing fancy about it. It seemed like every other week, like we'd go there one week and the next week, like the walls, like they always kept moving walls around. Yeah. Do you remember that? Like, yeah, I do. I remember because it was kind of a loft space that the guy built out, and he was just kind of moving stuff around. It was a weird place. I remember when we graffitied, we graffitied the wall behind the console, and at first, like, we I, I kind of remember we got yelled at, and then it became the thing of the studios that everybody came there and did graffiti while they while they recorded. I remember the first time that we went there. Psyched, we're going to go to a recording studio. I've been to like. The Young and the Uses recorded at a nice recording studio, and this place was like a fucking dump. Yeah. It was fucking literally a dead fish in the fish tank, and it was dark. It was like super dark. Like everything was dark. I was like, why Why is it? Why are we going to this scary, like haunted house? Remember walking up? It was like five flight walk up. It was dirt, dingy, dirty place. No, I remember the elevator because it was all graffitied and somebody wrote their name. It was all this graffiti and someone wrote Jose Ninas in the top corner. And every time we got in the elevator, we thought that was the funniest name. And it literally, we laughed every time we were in that elevator because Ninas is a funny last name. I feel like we we laughed a lot at Chung King. Yeah. Well, and on the way there and on the way out, like it was just, that's like, I think part, one of the key things about License to Ill at least, was making it, it never felt like we were making an album. Like, it just felt like exactly what you just said. Like, it was kind of like that was just part of, all right, wake up, go to your dorm room, listen to some records, you know, go to Cozy Soup and Burger, then whatever club's going on that night, and then if there's an idea, studio. 
it wasn't like now, you know, the cult, like Adam said, like, it's not like we were making an album for this amount of time. And actually, it's funny, I, mean, I think back at you talking about me calling you and making that phone call and asking, like, what's up with the record? I kind of, now I'm thinking back at it, and I remember we were on the Raising Hell tour, and I remember <laughs> Run being really excited, Run and Russell getting me all excited, like, they, like they're like, you gotta call Rick, like, what's taking so long with your album? Like you guys should be like run. Cause he'd heard like by then he, you know, he was so excited about hold it now, which was hold it. Now was like one of those songs. Like we're talking about, like we were out of the club. I remember like we, I remember we went in there and just played like around with like a bunch of different, like scratching things in off of records. And I think we even put down the verses and then I remember you and Russell kind of like hearing it after we've already, already done some stuff and you specifically being really excited about it. I loved it. And, and you were like actually more excited even than we were, where you were like, yeah, this, this is it. Like this is, this is what you guys need to be making. Yeah. It was mind blowing. I loved it. Oh, you know, Questlove just told me a story the other day that I wonder if you guys know this in Philly, when Hold It Now came out as a single, the version that was released to radio was the acapella, which we called the Acapulco. And so in Philly, people thought that the song didn't have a beat. Or any music or anything. It was just vocals. Yeah, it was just, it was just vocals. And he thought, wow, this is the craziest record I ever heard. It's just this rhyming and he said, and it was really well-liked in Philly, even though it was su such a crazy, you know, the first rap record not to have any music. And, um, but, and it was a hit. And then when the album came out and it had the beat, nobody liked it because they were used to the acapella version, which they thought was just like the greatest thing they ever heard. <laughs> we were talking to him and he was saying something that just reminded me of words that we tried to force into like, common you know speak we'd pick random words be like oh no this is this is what people say now i can't why am i blank i'm trying to i'm like i'm blanking on him so bad but we used to, we picked like a few different words yeah or phrases it would be sometimes it'd be a phrase too like you'd he you'd hear someone say something at the club that was just normal to them and we would laugh like brass monkey came from jazzy j talking about what he liked to drink and just like, yeah, it's like, what's funnier than Brass Monkey? Oh, my God. Brass Monkey is, that was a crazy night with Tila Rock. Tell me. I don't, I don't remember it. So you were producing a record for a rapper named Tila Rock. Yes. And we were going to go to the studio with you because we just, that, that's also what I like when you're young. You just, you just go with your friend wherever they're going. Like, it's just funny to think about going with your friend to their job. Like, no, you can't come to my job. I'm working. What are you doing? And so I didn't think about it. The place was in Queens or Long Island or somewhere. Yeah. It was like Long Island city. It was like, re we had to take a car. It was really far. Yeah. And me and Skilkum were there and it was just nuts. It just seemed so grown. And there was like grownups that we didn't know. I don't know Teela Rock, but it was like a real rap scene. It was just weird. Yeah. And then Jazzy J passed around a bottle of Brass Monkey and me and Skilkin were like, this is fucking delicious. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that you guys, you guys actually drank it. Oh yeah. The whole night was crazy. And then That's we got amazing. separated in two separate cars and we we're like in Long Island. We we're like, where are we? And getting White Castle. Anyway, it was, it was a really, it was a nice night. Yeah. I remember going, I remember taking cars to White Castle. It was hard in Manhattan. It was hard to get White Castle. I know probably for the best. But what do we say? Because rope-a-dope, like in late 80s, rope-a-dope, just, I just remember one word. We'd say, that shit is dope. And they'd be like, that's dope. It's rope-a-dope. And then we were like, we was like, oh, that's rope. And nobody, yeah. and like nobody. Rope did not last. <laughs> rope. Yes. We said rope all the time. But we said that a lot, but that shit, that, it did not last. That is so funny. It's too bad because it's kind of great. Nobody else was like, oh, that's rope? Yeah. What are you, what? I forgot rope. Rope is great. Rope makes no sense. We got to bring back rope. <laughs> rope is really funny, though. It's it's explaining the joke. It's not that good. I feel like flavor had a lot of the flavors. Normal wave speaking had a lot of references that could work their way into songs. Like of everyone we hung out with, 
Flavor was a gold mine of phrases. I just want you to know the last time I saw Flavor, I was in my car in New York, stopped at a red light, and he got in my car. And I was just like, what? It's like someone's getting in my car and it's Flavor. And he's like, yo, what's up? Take me to like 36th Street. And so I drove him. I was like, all right, good to see you. Wow. It was fucking nuts. Did, did, did you guys go to at all to the studio when Public Enemy was recording? No, I just remember, I remember going to their the radio show, the Spectrum City yeah. uh, <clears throat> show in Long Island and doing that. And I remember just like listening with, uh, with you and on our own, then when we were on tour, like listening to the demo for the song Public Enemy number one, like, uh, I mean, on repeat, like, I don't think there's uh, a single demo there's probably no demo that we listen to that much. Maybe no single song that we listened to so incessantly. It was that was so mind-blowingly good. It was incredible. I remember listening to it all the time. I'm trying to think with what were the other things that that were like that were like they really took over our lives for a period of time. Can you remember? Oh, Eric, Eric B for president. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that uh, Schoolie, uh, Schoolie D. Schoolie D. Schoolie uh, G. Schoolie G. <laughs> Squeezy, yeah, Squeezy, yeah, PSK, all these party people, and nothing but squares. Remember, like how many times we would listen to that in in your dorm room and everywhere else? Like, yeah, when he, especially that thing of like school, like Squeezy's whole intro on that thing, like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's too no school, school. What time is it? What was his DJ's name? Code Money. Code Money. Code Money. Get your feelings out. <laughs> code money. Code money. My code. <laughs> code, My code money. So good. Oh, man. Such good records. So funny. I mean, I, know, I guess, whatever. We, we are of a certain age, so we, that's, we, but we will talk about it often. Like, it is incredible how many great rap records were coming out, like 1988, 1989, like just mind-blowingly good rap records. I'm trying to remember which were the, what were the other ones that really like moved the needle for us? Sucker MCs was everything. Obviously, right. I, I, they run DMC were the, I mean, they were the archetypes. They were like, you know, I mean, and Jay, Jay talked so much about performing and how to sort of put a rap show together um, and how to, you know, I think along with you, how to put a rap record together. Was there anything else that we had that wasn't out? Like, like with the Public Enemy tape, Probably as a demo. I remember Bismarck E was out, but I remember when we heard that first Bismarck E 12 inch and talking about it with uh, DMC and Jay and being really excited about it. You had a demo for uh, Slick Rick Children's Story, Rick. Oh, that's and right. I remember, loved that. Right, right. Yeah. Well, because that was another thing. I mean, Lottie Dottie in the show, we must have listened to Lottie Dottie in the show. I, again, uh, unquantifiable amounts of times. Do you remember the story of let me where let me clear my throat came from? I have a vague, I have a memory, but I don't know if it's accurate. No, tell me. I don't. My memory was that on LL's demo tape that you found in the box of demo tapes that that came to the dorm before he started rhyming, he said, <clears throat> "Let me clear my throat," and and I remember. That we, for whatever reason, it was the funniest thing we ever heard. It may, I mean, there was, it wasn't, there was nothing funny about it, but somehow the idea that that was the first thing said before the, the song starts. I know it's so easy to take that out now. Do you know? It, it's so, it's so easy, but back then you couldn't, you just, you didn't know how to take stuff out. And just whatever you recorded was on there. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was nothing. But for some reason, I remember we latched onto it. It's like, this is just the funniest thing we've ever heard. We just latched onto it. And I can't remember how it ended up getting into the song. <laughs> I'm sure you were like, wait, let, you should say, let, you should scream that really <laughs> angrily. That's funny. <laughs> it's so dumb. But again, this is the, the beauty of it's it. It's in such a different context, too, though, on, this, on our song as opposed to his demo tape. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of uh, the montage of hip-hop. That's how, 
like recontextualizing things that you find in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Any other memories of Danceteria? I feel like that was sort of the place that I remember we went to the most. So many. I mean, so much. So many. Um, All right. Where were we starting? I mean, really, that was was, definitely one of the first places we we would talk to girls. I thought you were you were just claiming junior high school status. So you're doing all kinds of things. You're in the mix. No, but um, on, no. Mike. All right, dance there. I would say like me, it, it just like hearing. You didn't know there were like the songs that you would hear every every night, like uh, uh, APB shoot you down or or New Order, um, Confusion. You'd hear like every single night or George Fry. Medium, 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 medium. My favorite top three favorite things of dance interior was being on that dance floor room, second floor, just in the corner by the stairs. We'd always be hanging out. The music would be playing. People would be dancing. And there was some guy in the middle of the crowd would be like, work that body, (laughs) work that body. And it wasn't just like once. It was like every night. Yeah. Memories of uh, the Roxy. I, I remember the rocks. I remember two things. I remember uh, Africa Bambata playing uh, Tony Basil, uh, Oh Mickey, You're So Fine at the Roxy. So, like, I, you know, I'm there, like a white kid at the Roxy. Theater. It's like the most B boy place ever. And here's Africa Bambata, one of the most important hip hop DJs ever. And he's playing Tony Basil. Like, you know, not, there's nothing that I thought. Um, rap like music like what I associated with Tony Basil and I was just like wow that's incredible like, he could make Tony Basil old Mickey you're so fine work in the Roxy was incredible that and then I just remember being scared to go to the bathroom at the Roxy oh, Roxy was just it was just like dudes like selling coke and getting high and like shit was scary I just felt like I was going to get robbed in the bathroom yeah <laughs> me too well, that that I remember because I went to Roxy when I was a kid because it was a roller skating place, and so I I don't I don't know how to roller skate, but like we used to, it's like a thing you go and hang out at the roller skating place, and so then later a few years later, Roxy was a thing where we would go to you know the disco, and I remember when we were there I don't know if it was the first time we were there but then like fucking shots rang out and someone had a gun and was shooting and people were running, I was like this is not the same thing from when I was 11, 12, you know, whatever. It's, it was a place. You put a bunch of teenage dudes in the same place, some weird shit's going to happen. Well, why is that? It is the case, but why? Teenage dudes are stupid. I don't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about the, the Hey Mickey reference that Bambati used, and that probably led, that hearing that there probably was a step in why the song It's Tricky got made. Oh, I thought you were going to say World Destruction and, and for him. Because it's like the same beat. Yeah, because World Destruction is like the same beat. Yeah. Yeah, I just, re- I just remember It's Tricky being like feeling, there were certain vibes that you would feel at a hip-hop club that stood out that were different than the others. And it's like, hmm. How do you incorporate that? Because that definitely feels good. Like we're in the club. This feels great. That's now part of the language. Like that felt like, okay, that's part of the language in hip hop. It'd be if you were in a band and somebody uh, in a band did a, a waltz beat instead of a 4-4 beat. And you'd say, oh, that's a new part of the vocabulary. You can write a song with a waltz beat. I'm not mad at a waltz beat. I got, you know, I got tons of songs with Wall Speeds. Oh, wait, one thing, Rick, I did want to say, because you were talking about how, I don't even know how to explain it to people, or maybe it's not even worth trying to explain, but like we, we were talking about opening for Madonna, but that it's, it's also, it's very interesting. We look, obviously we've, we've changed a lot through the years, but it's, it's, it's interesting to me because people know, I feel like relate to us or a lot of people know us just from like life and still beastie boys. And then there's a lot of people that grew up with us for a lot of stuff, whatever. But a lot of people know us just like as it, in that um, incarnation license and ill time. And I think it's interesting with you, you were like such a big part of like when we were opening up for Madonna and this, like this whole idea of like persona, but then people actually know you now 
like from your persona now, not from like, like how you would talk then. And I don't even know how to explain when I try to explain to people how you would talk in, in sort of like when you're excited about like pro wrestling and how you would do that. I, I don't even know how to capture it or explain it. Yeah. It's definitely a, a, a ramped up character. Uh, inspired by like Roddy Piper would be one of the key guys, Ric Flair, the, the guys who would, uh, who you'd want to see lose and who would often find a way to win through cheating. Um, but they were the funniest. They, they always like the bad guys in wrestling. The bad guys have the best lines. So they were the most charismatic and funniest characters. So I would put on that air. That's to do with youth, Michael. Youth don't give a fuck. <laughs> um, Thank you for doing this. Great to see you, Adam. I miss you. I love you. And I look forward to continuing uh, bridging, bridging the years that, that we've missed. Love you too, Rick. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Rick. It's great to see you. Spike, a pleasure. I miss you. I miss you, Ben. See you later, you guys. Bye, everybody. Thanks to Mike, Adam, and Spike for taking the time to catch up with Rick. You can hear all our favorite Beastie Boys songs, plus the other songs mentioned in this episode, by heading to brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel, where you can find some great bonus material from past episodes. You can subscribe at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mia LaBelle, Leah Rose, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening.